0: and welcome to alchemy the home of the open mind thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show and the variety of eye-opening guests that we will be hoping to bring to you in the future on a more regular basis than we have for the past while we're free completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and itunes and we rely on donations to keep the show free and advertising free we're very grateful for any help you can offer and there's no fixed cost on donations it all helps so if you could spare even the price of a cup of tea or a cup of coffee every month it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated you can also find us on facebook and twitter so get following and interacting with us with all your feedback guest suggestions and other input so on to the show alchemy this week's guest is phoenix aurelius phoenix is a professional spajurist and an instructor of the alchemical arts and sciences his personal mission is to help integrate alchemy into the social fabric of our culture to inspire transformation and conscious evolution of both ecology and humanity phoenix you're very welcome to alchemy how are you
1: hey i'm doing so well thanks so much for having me on john i really appreciate it
0: no it's a huge pleasure i stumbled across your work through a good friend of the show here crow triple seven and i've been fascinated by it ever since and of course the work that you do is linked to the title of this show alchemy which we'll get onto in due course but phoenix there's a question i ask every newcomer onto the show and it's how did you get from where you were to where you are now
1: hey that's a really great question you know when i was uh A teenager I used to be a skateboarder and uh, on my brother's like I can't remember which birthday uh, must have been his eighth or ninth birthday I dislocated my ankle and so I tried healing up from that went back out another time dislocated my ankle again healed up from that went out dislocated the same ankle again so that was like three times in about a 90 to 100 day period And the doctors were like, I don't know what you're thinking, you're not going to be able to do this anymore. So I stopped, I got the hint and I went out into the woods instead. And there I started spending a lot of time just, you know, relaxing and hanging out and watching nature. And ultimately what that led to was a hypnotic trance and meditation sessions and other things without me even really knowing what I was doing Mm -hmm. and spending a lot of time with the plants and uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about what to do with the plants. And so I went into, I was still at high school at that time, and uh, I went into the, the computer lab at, at the, the library there and basically started searching out various ways of preparing plants, and I pulled off this document from what was called the Philosophers of Nature that said how to create a spagyric tincture, and I didn't ever bother looking up what spagyric meant, it just gave me a very straightforward process of what to do. So, I just started doing that and years later, I was comparing some of my work. I was working at a cafe and making elixirs for people and, you know, putting my, my tinctures and stuff in the drinks and the teas and the infusions I was making. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of herbalist friends say, man, your work is so different than mine. What do you do? So I ended up inviting her over and she said, you know what, this is, this is totally different than what just most herbalists do. So I'm gonna do some research. She came back, she told me, hey, what you're doing is called spagyric. I said, oh yeah, I know that word, it's on this, this document. She says, okay, well that would have been helpful. But she says it's all part of the alchemical tradition and that here in Salt Lake City was the largest school of alchemical tradition in the entire world. And so I got really excited and researched into it and it turns out that school closed two years before I was born. But still, it led me on a a track of being able to search down those resources and kind of elevate me to where I got today. What an
0: almost accidental or chance occurrence that has led you on a life path.
1: Yeah, exactly. When people say, how did you get into alchemy? My simple answer is usually by fate and fortune. I love (laughs) it. I, I don't
0: believe in coincidence anyway. So it was obviously something that was meant to happen. Indeed, indeed. So, Phoenix, before we get on to the word spajuric itself, let's talk about alchemy a little bit. What does it mean to you? And I mean, obviously, there is a dictionary definition, but what do, with regard to plants and the work that you do, what is your alchemy?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking that. So, for me, alchemy is a perennial tradition of observing and replicating nature to be able to hasten evolution consciously, And what this really comes down to is understanding how to utilize the archetype of fire in all of its multitudinous forms and functions to be able to catalyze the rest of the archetypal elements uh, in series of changes that create a transformation. What a transformation is, is very different than a change. A transformation is where I take a material and I change the structure of it so vastly through a series of individual changes that by the time I'm done, it no longer performs even a similar function, nor looks the same or is recognizable as the same starting material. So for instance, if I were to take, say, sand, smelt that sand down, turn it into a glass, blow that glass, turn it into a sculpture, now I have performed a transformation for instance, because the sculpture does nothing even remotely similar to the way that the sand acts or behaves, mm-hmm. nor does it fulfill the same function, nor does it even act on the same level. Sand is a very physical thing. It's a product of you know, rocks in the ocean being able to tumble over and over and over and break down. However, we have glass, which is an artistic piece that's meant to inspire and to move people in their emotions and in their thoughts. So we're talking about a physical construct versus an astral construct. This is kind of what transformation really looks like to me and why alchemy is really important because it gives us an understanding of how to be able to transform all sorts of substances. And like I was just talking about with glass, that definitely extends into industrial applications and it always has, the tinting of metals, the making of weapons, the you know whatever, making glass, refining things. That's all part of the alchemical arts, but also medicine is part of the alchemical art as well. And by utilizing the very same sets of principles, we're able to make medicines and remedies utilizing alchemical philosophy. And this is traditionally known, it was brought about by a, an alchemist and a spagyrist uh, who created the term spagyria known as Paracelsus. And it's in his tradition primarily that I follow
0: Okay, so that's what we're talking about then. It's the alchemy of plants to help or to heal or to, I suppose in the true sense of the word, to use medicine.
1: Sure. Now, uh, it's typically a bit of a misnomer that spagyria just ends in the herbal kingdom. Spagyria actually includes all of the kingdoms. So I, I make spagyric preparations of the metals in the same way that I make spagyric preparations of minerals and animal materials as well as herbal materials. So we don't discriminate like a lot of people think. It's just that most practitioners of spagyria today are not skilled enough to be able to extend medicinal virtue into those kingdoms. A lot of them keep it purely at an initiatic form, which is achieving a substance. And whether they choose to ingest that substance or not is usually a moot point for an alchemist. But for a spagyrist, our point is to make, not only make the substance and have the initiatic experience, but to be able to do it so well and so fluidly that it also has medicinal virtue.
0: Fascinating. So tell us a little bit then about the initiatic experience and I suppose the early stages. Um, One thing I would like to do is get the word tincture out of the way for those that might not understand it. Can you give us a definition of that, please, Phoenix?
1: Sure, yeah. To tincture just really means to color. And so traditionally a tincture in modern uh, herbal pharmacopoeia is uh, a plant extract that is made at least partially with alcohol. In the alchemical tradition, we like to make everything with pure 95% or higher alcohol. So a spagyric tincture typically, depending on the artist, will be 95% or higher alcohol used in extracting a plant, either fresh or dried. And uh, the result of what comes out there is a tincture. What classifies a spagyric tincture is when we also perform a series of preparations on the salt material and crystallize uh, the purified salts from the ashes of the plant. And once we do that and recombine everything and allow a digestion to which creates what's known as an iatrochemical reaction, the end of that iatrochemical reaction after a filtration signifies the finishing of a spagyric tincture. And so tincture is just any alcohol or water-alcohol combination with herbs and filtered out. Spagyric tincture is a little bit more complicated.
0: Perfect. And how does that differ then to homeopathy, for example?
1: Right. So, um, homeopathy was based many hundreds of years later by this guy named Doctor Samuel Samuel Hahnemann, who was an avid student of Paracelsus, and he took a couple of principles that Paracelsus said in spagyric medicine. Where Paracelsus said, "Everything is a medicine and a poison. It is the dose which, depends, uh, which determines its virtue." And so Samuel Hahnemann thought about that a lot, and he thought, "Well, there's probably like this like versus uh, like kind of thing that happens where if I give a person a very tiny dose of." the same plant or metal or whatever that in a normal dose would cause an ordinary person to like say vomit, Mm. then the small dose or the quote unquote, the hair of the dog that bit you will maybe heal those same symptoms. And so it's this like cures like in very small, small, small dosages that homeopathy relies upon. And it's entirely different than traditional spagyria, but with that being said, Spagyric medicines, all of my spagyric tinctures can still be turned into homeopathy. And in fact, there is an entire field of homeopathic spagyrics. people can even, you know, get a doctorate in that degree, and it's called a Doctor of electro And there's a place out of the United Kingdom uh, called the World Electro-Homeopathy Organization, or WEHO, W-E-H-O, and they, they offer those certifications. I think that those things have its merit. They definitely have their place, but they're far more limited in what they're able to do because they're part of the medical tradition than the research that I am participating in these days.
0: So let's get on to that then and the initiatic experience and the early days of your work in this field. What was it you were doing? What effect was it having on you? And were there any contemporaries who were doing the same? Who did you learn from?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, there were there were absolutely no contemporaries. I was just a young boy, you know, I was like 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. I was like almost 19 before I even figured out that what I was doing had anything to do with the alchemical tradition. Okay. So I, at that time, I really had no contemporaries. But as soon as I found out that the largest school of alchemy that had ever existed in the history of mankind that we know of had existed right here in Salt Lake City just you know a few miles south of where I lived it really lead, led me to a lot of hope and so what I started to do was I started to search around for the surviving students of Froder Albertus who was the guy who who ran this uh, it's called the Paracelsus Research Society out here mm. and it turns out that his daughter was alive still his son was alive but didn't want to have anything to do with any of us in fact he was a police officer so he didn't really like to talk about his dad much or have any affiliation he just wanted to be his own own person you know deputy dog or whatever yep and then uh but his daughter was really fascinating i think she is still in the process of writing biographies about her father which will be really fascinating for for all of us to hear if those ever are able to be published um but i was able to meet up with a lot of students and it just so happens that the international alchemy guild in 2007 held uh, a conference in Las Vegas. The very first international alchemy conference is the largest gathering of alchemists in over 500 years. And they brought all of the students of Froder Albertus who were still living together to be like uh, honorary guests at the conference. And so I was able to see a cluster of them all in one room. And it turned out that many of them lived here in Utah and just, you know, on the other side of the Rockies there in the Colorado range. And we were able to meet up and talk and have email communication. And that just really, really shaped my path. And uh, so fast forward a couple of years, it was probably about 2000, I think that must have been either 2008, 2009, I was sitting at my computer and an email comes in as I'm checking my email from the International Alchemy Guild Bulletin that says that this woman is, uh, who was a secretary of Frater Albertus is giving away all of her books and all of her labware and uh, is open to selling them and so on and so forth. Well, I was already teaching alchemy by that point and I could definitely use some labware so I just gave her a call immediately and just said, hey, you know, I've got... Some education that I'm doing, and you know, my students need some labware to practice on, and you know, here's my situation, and just be interested uh, to know if you'd be able to sell me anything for cheap. She says, Well, how soon can you be down here? Thinking that I would say, you know, a week or two. Yeah. I told her about forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I went down there and she spent a lot of time with Frauder Albertus, a lot of time, and she said that. He had a lot of charm and he had a lot of, you know, psychic prowess and he had all of these qualities and it kind of gave her goosebumps that I had some of these qualities that he, that he had and she thought that I needed to have at least a couple of his items and just be alone with them downstairs for a minute. So she handed me a pair of gloves of his that I still have that were like a Kevlar and uh, uh, asbestos, even gloves that you put on to protect you from really high, high temp heats. Hmm. And I just sat down there and meditated. And when she came back, I mean, I was just tearing up. I mean, I, I really didn't, I was so overwhelmed by the experience, but she, in her head, she said that I had the experience that she thought that I'd have and that all of this needed to go back with me. So she loaded me up with four truckloads full of laboratory wear and books from her time and her mother's time, also being a Rosicrucian, as well as her and her husband having both studied not only with Frater Albertus, but then went on in the '90s to continue to be uh, very influential members with the philosophers of nature and the Jean Dubuis group um, that came to the United States and Canada. And so she, I mean, the the resources that I got loaded up on have propelled my path in a way that was both unprecedented and completely unforeseen. Like I never never asked for those things, never would have known mm. that they even existed. But I have handwritten notes from Frater Albertus in his Praxis Spagirica Philosophica on very particular things on how to interpret it properly and what to do and what to do with this process. And I have, you know, specific handwritten notes from some iconic members like Jack Glass to Froder Albertus I have lab notes from you know Robert Bartlett when he was still in his late 20s and early 30s and stuff you know I have his initial paper on the thermal decomposition of the acetates all of these things came to me through that source and it it's just allowed me to literally expand in ways that I could have never foreseen
0: almost like a gift from the alchemical gods
1: I mean, yeah, exactly. I'm humble about it all the time just because how much of a gift that was and literally how much it changed my entire practice. It went from diddling around and working with a couple of herbs here and there and making some basic spagyric tinctures and every once in a while distilling my own alcohols and, you know, this and that and the other Mm. to blown I've got a really solid handle and a mastery over I mean I don't want to say mastery in the term that like I don't have more to learn but for the processes that I have done I mean I know them through and through I split test everything I've gone I mean the the things that I've been able to do and see and now that I'm starting to collect analytical data for through intrinsic data field analysis mm-hmm it's going to it 's just changing the entire nature of the game, the entire nature of the the alchemical paradigm if I didn't have those notes never would have led me here
0: okay, so tell us a little bit about the work that you actually are doing now then and the practical application of it for somebody who knows absolutely nothing about it. this is the first uh, first kind of exposure they've ever had, even to the term spajurics. So what can you do for them or what can you do for other people or for yourself? is it just for fun is it just to see what happens is it just a dude burning shit as, as it might have been back in the woods back in the day I mean I know it's not but let's talk about sure. what it is that you do
1: <laughs> all right cool well I think that initially all of those interests get compiled into one that's what draws and has drawn so many people into alchemy but no practically if you practice the path of alchemy alchemy is an initiatic path and we kind of You asked me about that earlier and I didn't really answer. So initiatic path means that you are finding your way through life and performing spiritual, psychic, and physical growth consciously side by side to try and evolve yourself in the same way that your materials are being evolved in the laboratory. And traditionally, the alchemical path, this isn't always true, but in modern terms, the way that it works is that you either start with water or you start with the herbs. And then once you've mastered the principles there, then you can move on to say, like the early parts of the animal kingdom, like working with shells and, you know, eggshells, you know, seashells, different types of things like that. Mm -hmm. You bone, stuff like that. Then starting to work with more animal materials, like, like sinew and blood and urine and feces and different types of things like that. And then ultimately working with minerals and metals full blown. Uh, The reason that there is a progressive stage for that is that as you work with each of those kingdoms, the involvement gets much more intense, they get much more stinky typically, and then they also require a lot more refinement and involvement, and if you mess up, especially when you're working with metals, you might be spitting out 800 Celsius uh, liquids all over the room if your flask shatters, whereas working with the herbs or with water, you're just spilling some boiling water or yeah. shooting out steam, for instance. So there's this typical gradation that helps to steady your hand as well as to initiate you slowly into the, the ways that kind of nature evolves because it starts from water. And then it kind of starts from that amoebal kind of bacterial level, which when we ferment that, we call that gur. And then it moves into herbal work and then fermentation even of the herbs so that you get your alcohol. And then that, once you have your alcohol and you've distilled it, that's where you start to get your tinctures and so on and so forth. So there's this natural evolution of medicine and of nature that a person gets to see and to experience existentially when they practice alchemy as an initiatic path. And the goal is always, to view the same material that you are working with as the part of yourself that you're working on. So if I'm working on lemon balm, for instance, lemon balm might correspond to my liver, and it might also correspond to everything that is tied up within the liver meridian, for instance.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And as a result of that, there are going to be emotions, there are going to be physical functions, there's going to be all sorts of things that are tied into that. So when I'm working on this material and transmuting and exalting it, I'm also performing the meditations and I'm also doing the physical work in order to ensure that my liver meridian undergoes the same processes that that material in the flask is undergoing. And when you sync up your reality in this way, which for thousands of years before about 1750, this was all just called philosophy. When you live in that philosophical way, the whole universe is really easy to see and to categorize by these alchemical archetypes of sulfur mercury and salt which are known as soul spirit and body and then we can break that down and we can look at the archetypal elements in the astral construct of the world and everything that we see is broken down kind of like a filter of our reality that gets put somewhere inside of these filing cabinets so that we know how to access them we know how to go about them because we know what laboratory processes correspond to uh each one of those things like for instance if i want to get the essential oil or the volatile soul of a material i know that i have to perform an essential oil distillation and so that looks like adding water to something adding heat to something then capturing it and and condensing the vapors that process is the very same as being able to refine your own dreams, being able to get out of the concept of what you think you want mm-hmm. and creating the situation for it and really finding that what you really wanted is the emotion that that dream made you feel. If you can feel the way the dream made you feel, then you've really got the essence of it. Well, that's why we call an essential oil, the essential oil, it contains the essence of the plant. It doesn't have all the crude material that you don't want. Yeah. So it's like that.
0: Well that's very, very interesting because um, my my professional background is in music and I produce electronic music. And what you're talking about reminds me a little bit about the process involved with creating a piece of music on a computer. So I have I have different different ingredients, if you like, different tracks, and the way that I put them together and the way that I force them to interact with each other in a sense on a vibrational level will put something out the other end that is entirely different than the sum of its parts and depending on my mood or how I feel on a particular day or whether I can get into a a particular flow the result can be dramatically different. It's not just the physical parts, the different musical elements, be it a guitar piece or a vocal or whatever it is. What I am thinking or what I'm feeling at a particular time can have a huge effect on the ultimate output. Is that a good example of what you're talking about there, albeit in a different realm?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, it's really great that you're drawing parallels like that because that's the way that an alchemist would see the world really. Is being able to see the inherent pattern whether we're working in the laboratory or not seeing those same patterns that go across all things everywhere and can be broken up and worked with just the same way so music is this very ethereal thing right mm-hmm. we either have to take instruments or you know like you were talking about with digital music we have to take samples and then we Able, we're able to mix these things and like you were talking about the end result is so much more than just The sounds themselves or the input that you have to make to create the noise it is so Out of this world realistically it can change our emotions It can alter our entire endocrine system and interfaces with our endocrine system yeah. and with our nervous system So yes, you're you're exactly right now on a psychological level This is the thing that I think is most important and relevant for our culture, is that alchemy is necessary sociologically and psychologically on an individual level. And here's just a basic, basic process. So Dennis Howe kind of lays this out in some of his books like The Idiot's Guide to Alchemy, and he has a book called The Emerald Tablet and like Secrets of Transformation or something like that. He really goes into a lot of work, but his work is really based on Dr. Gottlieb and a number of others who have written about this work long before him, but he lays it out like this. When we use archetypal fire in the laboratory, we're performing the archetypal process of calcination. Okay, and this is true inside of life. Whenever we start to work with a really intense or just a raw grade of fire, This works with the archetype of calcination. What calcination is in the laboratory is taking an herbal material or any material, but let's just talk about herbs because it's easy for people to visualize. We take an herbal material and we just stick it inside of a big crucible and burn it until it's like smoldered down into a black ash. And then once it's all smoldered down, we crush it and burn it again and crush it and burn it again and crush it and burn it again until it becomes as fine a white an ash as possible. Now, what this process is like psychologically is being able to take our justifications for why we are the way that we are, whether we're self-deprecating, whether we are telling ourselves that we're not capable of doing things that we definitely are capable of because everybody has unlimited potential, yep. whether you know, they're false belief systems about ourselves, whether they are sociological constructs of belief. you know, It doesn't matter what it is as long as we can take that thing and say, I am this way because. Now, the, why we would get there in the first place is that everybody has this ideal image of, I would be happy if only I had dot, 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 or if only I could, dot, dot, dot. They wrap this story saying, I don't have those things, therefore I can't be happy. What I'm trying to do is break that down and say, well, what do you want, and what's in the way of you getting that? Because I'm going to show you that when you get that thing, you're still not going to be happy. And the reason is, is that you are following your dreams and going through all the crude actions and pretending that the doing is what will get you there. Mm -hmm. And if you go down this path for long enough, and this is an existential journey, I can be telling people this and they will still go there. I could have been told this, which I was, and I still went. To the path you just have to existentially go through it but once you go through it you get to deeper and deeper and deeper layers of understanding and just so happens to be a very common experience throughout the ages that people who, who walk down this pathway of performing the, the psychological work the transpersonal work that is associated with alchemy become much more aware of their environment and much more able to kind of control it so calcination the first step, but you have to burn away your justification. So if I say this has happened to me multiple times in my life, I am overweight. I don't want to be overweight. Okay. So why am I overweight? That's the first question I ask. I apply the fire of awareness to my problem. And then I'll give myself all sorts of answers. Like I am overweight because dot, dot, dot. And it usually ends up, you know, being some sort of an excuse. Well, just like fire, you're not going to buy the excuse. You're going to burn the excuse. Yeah. And so you say, no, I'm not really going to buy into that story. I haven't been taking enough accountability with my eating habits, with my you know, exercise, with my thyroid health, with whatever it is. I have not taken the accountability of that. And when you can get down to the absolute truth that it's your fault that everything in your life is happening the way that it currently is it has nothing to do with anybody else they may have impacted you but you allowed yourself to be impacted once you get to that hardcore solid truth which is the white ash of our physical existence that we are actually in control of our existence then that opens up our emotional gates and our astral energy that has been used against us. We've been tying up so many people utilize their astral energy to repress all of their emotions, right? And so opening up the emotions and opening up the floodgates and saying, whoa, how does it feel that all of this thing, all of the self-deprecating behavior, all of this, you know, the way that I look, all of the whatever is me that's me. It's my choice. How does that feel? Immediately, that's going to open up some really, really deep emotions. And this is the process of what we call dissolution. And it's literally where the crystallized memories inside of our heads dissolve and they exit through the tear ducts. And that's the reason why tears are salty from an alchemical perspective is that it's literally the waters of our emotion breaking down and dissolving the crystallized belief structures and memories that were held inside of our our mind inside of our belief systems inside of our astral body so i know that many scientists would say oh that's hogwash but certainly there's some sort of metaphor to it then once we do that you can't just be good there once you release the emotion if you don't do anything different you're going to fall right back into the same patterns so we enter into the phase of what we call separation this could look like filtration this could look like aeration in the laboratory but this is the process where a person sets goals for themselves in overcoming the situations that they fell subject to before so in my instance if I which I've gone through this multiple times like oh man I'm, I'm overweight why am I overweight okay I come down to the accountability thing then I release all of my emotion and Sometimes that's, you know, a few tears drop out. Sometimes it's like, oh, wow. I've re- especially the first time I did that was like, oh, man, I've not taken accountability for my body at all. And I was like 22, 23, you know, radically vegetarian at that point, you know, went crazy on it and went down that this path of trying to restore <laughs> the balance after so many years of imbalance. Regardless, I... Once I I got through the emotion, I had to set a path for myself and say, what am I going to do to be able to change this in my daily life? So I'm not a really big runner, (laughs) not a big fan of running at all. I'm kind of like a dwarf in that regard. I can relate. (laughs) Yeah, but I will definitely do some good sprints and, you know, maybe do a mile at max. So I I set myself out to do a half a mile every day of running And start going to the gym, things like that, and set myself on a very strict dietary plan and blah, blah, blah. Now, all of those things are the process of me making the changes that are necessary in order to get where I thought that I wanted to go, which I thought that I would be so completely happy with myself internally if only I had a physical body that would have been, you know, in shape or whatever. So I started working towards that. And once I had done that for a while, I realized that I was in shape and I still wasn't comfortable with myself. That's the, that's the deeper initiation. So once a person gets to that point, you have one of two options. The most common option is relapse. Okay, We get this kind of thing, whether it's with addiction to food or whether it's an addiction to alcohol and drugs or whatever. We get a relapse thing if somebody goes so far, hits a pinnacle and realizes, hey, I'm still actually unhappy or dissatisfied with my life. So the next thing is alchemically, once you've done all of those things, you have to come to a point where it's now time to distill the material. It's time to ferment the material or extract it. And then it's time to distill it. So I realized that, okay, now I'm fit, you know, whatever. This is great. Uh, but I still don't feel fantastic what do I need to do so I I felt in my heart you know what my life just doesn't have purpose actually like I'm fit but I'm still not satisfied because my life doesn't have purpose so what do I want to do I want to do something that's in line with me so I opened up a metaphysical store called sacred geometry out here in Ogden Utah it was light years ahead of its time, let alone for my region. I mean, we're in Mormon territory out here in Utah, man. Like, the, yeah. when you step into Salt Lake City, it's like stepping into 1973, okay? Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's not that bad. It's like 1986. We got, you know, a few cell phones floating around. So, but it's really, like, very... Very much so, a step into the past. Like, as you walk by and drive by, all your neighbors like smile and wave at you, and you know, yeah, kind of pleasantville. So, here I am opening up a metaphysical store, and obviously, it didn't go off the way that I planned. Now, if I would have been smart and followed my own alchemical advice at the time, and what all of the other people were trying to tell me. I would have distilled that dream of owning the metaphysical store because really what I wanted out of that store was community. I wanted the ability for people to be able to purchase spagyrics, which I carried in the store, to purchase items of sacred geometry that would help to like structure their field, you know, in the, either their home or their sleeping space or whatever. Yeah. I wanted people to be able to have access to really high-vibe etheric uh, like foods and. And some supplements and Chinese tonic herbs, and you know, different kinds of things like this. What I did not want, which is what I got the most of, was handling finances, customers, <laughs> a lot of complaints, teaching classes, doing all the scheduling, doing all these things, right? And it ran me into the ground immediately. And it actually ultimately was even the end of my marriage at that point. So it, uh, It definitely catalyzed a transformation, but because I wasn't conscious that I didn't actually want all of the tasks that came along with my dream, I just really wanted the feeling of it. And the feeling was community and a place to teach and a place to offer spagyrics and all those things. I've got every single one of those things now and I do not have the overhead or all of the problems of that store. (laughs) So it's all just about being able to refine your experience a little bit more. So the last two processes are really important. And if people will listen to what I just said and put this in perspective with what I'm about to say, they can put two and two together for their own life too, which is when we ferment or extract a material, most of that material that we extract is going to, or especially ferment is going to be dense. For instance, if I ferment a material, I might have, depending on what yeast I use and if I use any other sugars or whatever, between like 3% to 18% alcohol. Which leaves 20 plus percent, uh, or sorry, rather 80 plus percent being entirely water. What that means, alcohol is spirit. It's mercury, it's life force. Hmm. Water is the astral realm. The astral is full of dreams and images and other things. Now I can drink a glass of wine and it will definitely help me access the astral and also provide a little bit of spirit. But if I stick that wine inside of a flask and I start to distill it and just get the alcohol to come over. That alcohol is going to pierce the consciousness much more quickly and it's not going to have any of the water or that astral energy left over inside of it. Now it turns out that, you know, like our term for whiskey, Uh we have, you know, the water of life or eau de vie in French where there is a certain relationship with the human organism, which is 60% water, 40% alcohol in a distilled spirit provides good life, good digestion, good other things, if drunk in moderation. Hmm. Not drunk in moderation, it can create a lot of imbalances, just like anything can. But here's the difference. Drinking three to five pints of beer or four glasses of wine or whatever or drinking approximately three to four ounces of whiskey you see the potency difference there
0: yeah dramatic
1: dramatic and so when we can enhance the potency of the spirit and make it much more piercing just like when we increase this the percentage of alcohol to be piercing then the spirit is able to pierce through the physical material. So if I'm distilling an alcohol, the the 95% spirit is going to pierce through the physical herb and create a better extraction, a better tincture, a more pure material than if I have a lot of water content in there too. Now this is slightly depending on the herb, of course, too, and what whether it's dried or fresh, but the principle still remains the same, especially in our consciousness. Our spirit is what we are constantly looking to develop, and what most people don't realize—that has nothing to do with the soul. It has nothing to do with your personality. It has nothing to do with your prayers. What the spirit has to do with is the energy that you exude. When people are around you, do they say, "Ah, he's a really grumpy guy," or do they say, "Oh, he's a really amazing guy," or "Oh, he's a really intelligent person," or "Oh, she's, you know, spectacular at this," or whatever. The spirit is the snapshot that people are going to remember about you that's kind of like your essence and you can get little bits of your soul mixed up inside of there and even little bits of your body but like for instance when we think of Gandhi there's a little bit of his body like his face maybe even you know him walking with a stick and you know his white diaper thing all of those things but what we remember Gandhi for is not for that what we remember Gandhi for is for his essence, right? Even though we have found out since that he was a womanizer and all these other things, let us forget all that. What he stood for was nonviolent civil disobedience in the way that he lives on today. And his egregore was able to be transformed from a physical person into the astral. And we have the exact same opportunity to impact our society today with our own spirit and our own spiritual evolution as well as tapering off and controlling our soul which is the way that we come across in the world our psyche if you will you know some people's psyche is rather less than savory in these days you know very greedy you know very uh standoffish and all these other things and some people have a delightful soul but the soul is not what's important we will always have souls and souls are just as varied as, as ever our spirit provides the context it is the menstrum for our society so if individually we can perform this you know internal alchemy of spirit then we can also do this sociologically it will happen simultaneously as we start to do it individually because we are part of the society holographically and fractally we'll begin to see society change and for my part that has really been kind of like my submersive mission for you know 15 years now is teaching the spiritual work to people so that we can begin to see drastic changes in this world that we live in and the context for why we're living and how we're living.
0: And that's the key word there, I think, context, because what's really blowing my mind as you speak, Phoenix, is your description of what seems to be a universal code, how the parallel that exists is so narrow between the physical work that you do, for example, with herbs and the alchemy that you perform and the... Psychic alchemy and the work on the spirit and the mind and even the term spirit for, for the first time in my life I'm seeing possibly why spirits are called spirits because they have an effect on the spirit and How it can be used yes. as a tool as you've described I mean anything can be abused and quite often when people talk about hard liquor or spirits or whatever it is That's the connotation that immediately springs to mind. You know Somebody like a drunk on the side of the road or whatever But right. that, that's the abusive side of it But for every abuse there is also another use you know what i mean so correct this is resonating with me on so many different levels so if you decide you want to perform alchemy on the physical plane equally you can apply that same universal code to use the term i've used there to what's going on within your psyche and you can heal and you can transform and rather than change actually transform so that you become something else spiritually from what you were before. It's not just a change that you can slip back towards, it's an actual transformation. That to me is mind-blowing.
1: Right, so, well, and that's why for me, sometimes I lose perspective because I can only remember where I'm at now and where I've been maybe for the last five years and I lose perspective and I'll say, geez, why is our society not blah, 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 blah? But if I actually stand back and I say, you know, Phoenix, pretend that you don't know any of what you have seen and demonstrated as a universal truth to yourself through this laboratory work, where would you be? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, okay, just stand back and allow me to be patient and then to try and make as much of an influence as I can to help share this lens so that others who want to be able to see through it have the opportunity to. And in no way does it require somebody working on laboratory work in order to have these realizations. All it takes is somebody utilizing the same processes, like you were saying, the universal code. And what I would refer to that as as a perennial philosophy. Mm. It's the things that have been around and will always be around from the very beginning of time when I take a look at forest fires the forest is performing calcination then after it the rains come in and they seep in the minerals and they leave the dead ash behind on the top in order to create soil and they take all the minerals down into the ground and then the process of filtration happens when tree roots and fungi and microbiology begin to actually break apart all of those nutrients and put it into plants that part is you know, our fourth part, which is called conjunction. And then after that, as those plants are starting to grow, here we are with essential oil distillation. There's humidity in the air, the sunlight and the heat comes out. And as you walk through the forest, you can smell all of the leaves. You can smell all of the plants. As you mow the lawn, you can smell the lawn. All of the things, right, they are still happening in nature. In fact, it's not like we just started building you know, clay pots and breaking natural rules thousands of years ago. What we tried to do was to mimic nature. It's like alchemy in its essence is the first ecological study. It's biomimicry. Mm. And all that we've ever tried to do and all that we're still doing is trying to take a small version of nature, whether it's of our emotional nature or of our physical nature, you know, like nature around us and put it into a flask and subject it to a small series of changes that gently and consciously evolve it or exalt its intelligence in order to be as pristine as it is possible for that thing to be or as pristine as our consciousness can allow that thing to be would be another way of putting that. So, yeah, John, I think that, you know, you got the essence of it when you talked about music and hopefully it just like sinks in. like. Your music is changing people, and there's also this thing of if you change yourself alchemically with the process, and it also write music during that time, those things are going to be encoded into that process, and then it's going to get your listeners to automatically be caught into that same astral wave. Like, whether you know it or not, this is just the way that encryption has happened, and so. For the large part, Rosicrucians have tried to for at least, you know, for a few hundred years now, according to legend, tried to perform psychic healing and alms for people without having absolutely any physical presence just by holding space for them by doing things like writing music or You know, the very first slideshow presentation, for instance, was by a a guy named Michael Meyer who created alchemical woodblock prints that were rolled out on stage along with orchestral music that was sung in many different voices and instruments Mm -hmm. um, that encrypted the meaning of what he wanted. But it was an entertainment piece. It was like the equivalent of what we would think of today as a movie, but it encrypts the alchemical processes of transformation into us, and I think that many of our best storytellers today are just doing the same thing that bards of the Celtic territories once did, which is encrypt our history into very elaborate stories where each piece has a very deliberate meaning, but it's also an entertaining point of discussion.
0: Yeah, and do you think then the key thing is an awareness that we are part of nature? And I, I, there seems to be a tendency for most people in the modern world, certainly in the Western world, in my experience or with my observation, that there's a huge separation from nature. And when I say nature, you describe different forms of nature. So it, it doesn't just have to be a walk in nature. It can be our internal nature. It can be our physical nature, whatever it is. But there seems to be this separation that nature is something else. Nature is something that either happens to us or that we can immerse ourselves in but we're actually a part of that nature aren't we and I think if we have an understanding of that alchemy ceases to be this mystical unaccessible thing somewhere outside of us and becomes something that we can actually use and work with because it is actually within us
1: yeah exactly while while you're talking I'm just slightly overwhelmed with how I want to address this to get this across to listeners um from my perspective, and the perennial perspective of all Hermetic tradition, Hermetic tradition, uh, there's three branches of it. There's Kabbalah, or what is considered to be like magic, especially the magic of the mind. Then there's alchemy, and then there's astronomy. Those are the three, what are called Hermetic sciences. And the axis, the axiom of all alchemy is as above, so below. So that which is above is as that which is below for the performance of the miracles of the one thing is the way that that kind of reads. Yeah. And, you know, what I have to say is that when we are talking about people being distanced from nature, if they are distanced from nature outside of them, John, I guarantee you that they're distanced from their own internal reality. Mm. And I guarantee that they're also distanced from their emotional reality reality and their emotional nature. There is no differentiation. They're, they're one in the same. When we talk about these terms, these terms exist holographically and fractally in every dimension that we can think of, at least physical, mental, emotional, you know, so on and so forth, etheric. We begin to find these correlations to show up over and over and over and over. So, one person can heal their relationship with their disconnect, with their emotions. As a lot of people are finding out, they're not going to put it as clearly as I just did. But like for instance, in Scotland now, many psychiatrists are able to prescribe outdoor time to treat depression. Same thing within Sweden. So if people go out and get into the woods, then they find that not only are there the terpenes and terpenoids and other things that are present through the essential oil distillation that happens where they can breathe in all of the sense of nature that literally become part of their body and alter their gene structure and their endocrine system. That is to say, the hormones that make them feel the way that they feel, that's what nature is able to do to us biochemically, but also astrally and etherically like we also know from like masters like Montauk Chia, we're able to take in a lot of energy from the trees etherically and just being around their presence and all these other things. This is going to heal people emotionally. It's going to heal people mentally because we're talking about altering biochemically the very same hormones that were causing depression in the first place. For instance, like lack of serotonin or lack of dopamine these other chemical precepts inside of the air, these precursors are able to bind inside of our body in order to alter our brain chemistry. So this is what I see from my perspective is that there is no separation from nature. There never has been, but the more separate people try to become, the further and further away from our own reality we become. And I can see this every day because people now no longer will, you know, at this time of year in my region, There's tulips everywhere, the daffodils are almost gone, there's tulips everywhere, there's blossoming trees. I mean, everything's fucking gorgeous right now. And here we are with people burying their face into their cell phones, worrying about the next conversation, worrying about the Facebook thing. None of that has any basis in reality at all. None of it, not not a single bit. But everything outside has a tremendous amount of reality to it and this is what's being ignored. And so this is where I'm able to see that there is a disconnect from nature that people have individually they're afraid of it. And we've been taught that the germ-free way, that the sterile way, that cooking over electricity, that having, you know, electric lights and all these things are so much better, but the further that we go with our science, now we're even realizing with the, you know, all of the passionate research of Dr. Jack Cruz and everything, the, the lights are killing us, our exposure to electricity is is damaging us, it's killing our hypothalamus health which is causing depression, it's causing diabetes, it's causing every sort of uh, endocrine disorder you can think of including thyroid disorders and kidney disorders and mineral absorption disorders and heart disorders and on and on and on it goes and now I can confirm a lot of that with the intrinsic data field analysis that we've been doing because it's like it's abundantly obvious the people who are living lifestyles like that have the lowest numbers they have the lowest readings and those who limit their exposure or wear like blue blockers or do like small things like don't drink chlorinated and uh, fluoridized water all of those things they make a big difference and I can see the difference specifically in the hypothalamus health or the pineal health or whatever of my Mm -hmm. clients through IDF analysis
0: and it almost seems to me sometimes Phoenix well not sometimes, but I think there is a concerted effort by those in positions of perceived power and authority to further drive a wedge between the individual and the nature that we are actually a part of. And it's one of the reasons that, um, I mean, the the advent of virtual reality technologies and 5G and all, all these other things that we're hearing about all the time, we're starting to see rolled out very, very quickly, to me, is very dangerous because it's not just dangerous, for example, on an electromagnetic level, but it's also dangerous on that spiritual level because I know myself as somebody who spent a lot of time in my youth playing computer games and weaned myself off them gradually to the point where I don't play them at all and haven't in in decades now at this stage. But um, as somebody who, who has seen both sides of the fence, if you like, what they used to do to me on a spiritual level, and I didn't realize it at the time, it's only with hindsight now and with maybe a bit more spiritual awareness and a bit more awareness of of who I am myself now, I can see the damage that they did. And when I look around me and I see, for example, on a sunny day, and you talk about the tulips blossoming, and it's the same here at the moment. On a sunny day, and if if I look outside, the lack of children outside playing in nature, Even if it's just a green in the middle of a housing estate or a development or whatever it might be, the lack of that compared to when I was growing up is stark. There's such a contrast. Everybody's in playing Fortnite or they're in doing whatever it is that they're doing. And that's got to be a deliberate thing for me. It has to be. I just think that the more that that wedge is driven between us and the natural world, the easier we become to control.
1: Well, I I have to absolutely agree with you. You know, one of the things that people notice these things and they'll make comments about these things on social media, but they don't know how to process it or to have context for it or how to sociologically say, we're not going to stand for that. And let me tell you what I mean by this is like everybody loves Game of Thrones, but I've never met anybody who's ever watched Game of Thrones who felt really comfortable with all the rape scenes. Yeah, I also the same thing is true with uh, the show Outlander on stars, you know, absolutely brilliant. I love the whole story. I love the books, all the things there's still just so much of and they didn't shy away from the books. I'm not criticizing the writing or anything. I'm just saying that these things when they are put out to our sociology, like literally the moment that a film producer releases something on HBO or Showtime or stars, we don't look at it like this, but what they are really doing is taking accountability for shaping the future of the culture and our mass sociology for many years to come. Hmm. Our entire outcome looks like that. And so now there's all these people out there, including myself, of course, who have seen these things, who now have to become somewhat desensitized to seeing these things as a result of Uh, Whatever That is going to break down the spiritual purity that we have and it requires a tremendous amount of spiritual work to get it back up to par in the same way that you were talking about like all of the video games and decreasing spirit. What spirit is, spirit is determination. Now most of us have a certain determination and when I say determination I don't mean like physical will or or mental will what i mean is determination for a certain thing so your spirit and your soul ideally work together so you have a certain amount of physical determination or like you know resolve or whatever and then your psyche is the character by which it is brought across okay so your lower psyche your lower self is going to be your skin color your hair color your eye color your you know all of the things that people come to recognize you for as your lower self Mm -hmm. your higher self or your essential oil is going to be all of the things that you really come to stand for in the same way that Gandhi stands for nonviolent civil disobedience we could say that the higher soul is that aspect of Gandhi okay and those are the things of us that we can continue to go on that can continue to move if we can join them and if we purify our substance because our physical body will die. Make no mistake about it. The physical body dies ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and it regenerates. And I can show that in the laboratory. The physical body is constantly regenerating in and of its own. Spiritual dimension has laws of its own and the psyche has laws of its own. The psyche is not immortal, which is to say the soul is not immortal. There is no immortal soul, but there is an immortal spirit. And this I can prove in the same way that I can prove through alchemical work that spirit is able to dissolve ego, or that is to say that we're able to make a tincture that the alchemical mercury that I use, that I pour over the herb, is able to withdraw the fixed sulfur, which means that the the spirit dissolves the ego or the fixed sulfur. And so like these things, it's like an alchemical train of consciousness where if you learn to speak the language and you know what is possible and what isn't possible within a laboratory, you can kind of call bullshit on almost anything that people are trying to sell you in the modern day, whether it comes to a religion or whether it comes to a marketing philosophy or whatever. But most people do not have that language, they do not have that knowledge, they do not have that sense of certainty or that fortitude. And as a result, they are heavily, heavily influenced. And the further somebody is away from their spirit and their spiritual power, And imagine the effect that I'm telling you consciously it had on watching Outlander for me after doing tons of work. Imagine somebody who hasn't done a lot of work and maybe the negative states of depravity that it just continues to perpetuate, Yeah. okay? This is the type of thing that we're looking at in our world where the problems with our world are not that there are bad people so much as that there are good people who aren't doing their work and i think that for our part it's time to step up and to recognize that the world around us is not a fun place but we can create it to be but it takes our involvement individually proactively and it also takes the involvement of all of our neighbors which means that we have to to some degree be a wee bit of a cheerleader right That we have to get out there and we have to be able to let people know that this is the direction that we want our humanity to move in and it looks very much so the way that history has uh, gone perennially all of the good perennial things minus the things that have really messed us up like for instance clergy heavy totalitarian government systems whether capitalist monarchist or otherwise You know, we uh, there's just there's so many different oppressive systems that are in the world that we can rectify while still looking back to tradition for so many of our right answers like agriculture, like celebration of holidays, like, you know, working with land spirits, you know, like being in unison with nature, We're just getting balancing our pre industrial humanity and our pre industrial epigenetics with modern genetics and culture i think really from an objective perspective that's going to be the theme of the next 120 160 years or so
0: and do you think this is where biodynamics comes into the conversation then is that crucial to it
1: right so so i see that biodynamics are very very similar to alchemy in their processing and you know steiner was vaguely familiar with alchemical philosophy being a rosicrucian and so he knew quite a bit about the philosophy and things Uh, and his processes are very cool and very unique but i also see them as being very crude and primordial in that i don't need a stag bladder to create the right microbial set to ferment say my yarrow leaves i can do that with or yarrow flowers i can do that with many other preparations and so my work uh, with the agriculture thing, has been to create what is known as alchemiculture. And alchemiculture is a philosophy that I've been creating since about 2012. And I've had formal presences and withdrawn formal presences at various times. And uh, there is a book on Amazon if anybody wants it. It's a very basic book, it's just like a little handbook to organic uh, agriculture. And it just talks about the way that we need to think. In order to get rid of problems so it doesn't give you like specific pest control solutions but it tells you like hey if you have aphid problems maybe bring in ladybugs but if you've done that and your ladybugs leave then what plants do you have that your ladybugs want like if if they just have food and they don't have shelter then they're not going to stay there you have to think about creating an entire habitat also if you have aphids why aren't you creating a sacrifice garden somewhere else in the yard away from where your vegetable patch is and be able to draw them there and utilize things like rings of salt or other things that not only magically or quote-unquote etherically protect historically from these pests but also physically do like in the case of slugs and snails and many other creatures that would have to cross across that salt barrier where it would be detrimental to their exoskeleton. Yeah. you know so the, that's the kind of thing that i have on amazon already but i'm creating much more in-depth protocols much more in-depth recipes for people and really bringing about the the philosophy of alchemy in a way that that drives it all home but at present ecodynamic agriculture or biodynamic agriculture is definitely the way to go because it is utilizing 100% sustainability and the very same principles and the very same perennial philosophy that alchemical lab work is using, but it's utilizing it in a way that is conducive for agriculture as well as for reforestation and rewilding of many of our places. And that is, I can't even tell you how important that is. You know, where I'm at, (laughs) the whole valley here used to be beautiful grounds and forests and everything. And now it's just, Nothing but houses as far as the eye can see. Hmm. I used to grow up by swamps and in marshes and fields. All of that is completely gone, and it 's all built over now with you know all of these these high rises and things the last wild places of the world are being subject to the changes of our stupidity and i'm not saying that it's climate change per se that's a problem but i'll tell you all the things that are a problem geoengineering is a problem the use of pesticides herbicides and fungicides are a definite problem they contribute to soil erosion they contribute to the lack of healthy microbiology when there's an imbalance of microbiology or insects the fact of the matter is that there is an imbalance. It's just like when we get sick. Okay, Paracelsus had this, He Paracelsus was the very first alchemist and the very first healer in the entire Western world, actually, to have said that disease can come from an outside source. Before that, it was only conceived in Greek medicine or what we call Galenic medicine by as, as far back as you could go in the Western philosophy, uh, realistically, that, there are four humors, the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholic, and the bilious humor. And that these humors correspond to the elements and the, if these elements are at an imbalance internally inside of you then uh, that's what's creating the disease and then they have to do certain things like leech you or bloodlet or make you take purgatives or whatever in order to cure you. And most of the patients actually died because of the medical treatment they receive, not necessarily as a result of the disease itself. And that's true of most war battle wounds as well. Most people didn't actually die on the battlefield in most battles leading up to the advent of long range rifles. Most of them died from the treatment of their wounds up until they stopped plastering wounds and following spagyric medicine based on what Paracelsus said. So anyway, Paracelsus, I could go on and on and on about his medical merits. But he said that there are five causes of disease and some of those causes of disease like ens veneni is the cause of disease due to toxins or poisons and ens spirituale which is the cause of disease due to the effects of spiritual beings. Mm -hmm. He would have referred to spiritual beings very much so the way that we currently refer to microbiology. And truly, in a pre-scientific time, it would have looked like there were spirits inhabiting things. But he said this about spirits, which I will also say about viruses and quote-unquote bad bacteria and fungi and et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. is that they only come to dwell where there is an open environment that welcomes them. Yeah. Period. So I can tell you this very precisely. Okay, I just had uh, I just got tested positive for strep throat last Thursday. I did an IDF analysis, found out how bad it was, started a radionics broadcast, had two broadcasts, got another result done, the virus was gone, okay? That's not something that traditionally Western doctors would say. They'd say, no, you have to go and take amoxicillin or some other similar antibiotic in order to treat this virus and this bacteria. Otherwise it's going to create a systemic infection over time, left untreated. And what I can show them is that my energy field and three of my etheric points and my meridians were out of balance, which were preventing the proper flow of energy to my throat and to my immune system, which created an open environment for streptococcus and the strep throat in order to thrive. And as soon as I ameliorated the causes that my energy field created, I no longer tested positive for that thing. They, They fled from me because I was not a a very open environment. And if you think about it, when we talk about bacteria and and tests for bacteria, we even call them culture tests. A culture only moves in and takes precedent where another culture or the entire civilization is not keeping things in balance. And so that's very important to realize for our soil wellness as well, because if people are having problems with, say, root aphids, like I had with my cannabis a couple of years ago when I lived in Portland, it was because my plants were putting off a root hormone, a stress hormone that invited the soil aphids in. They were just responding to the hormone in the soil. Same thing is true with, with ants, actually, and I've actually figured out why. Ants respond to plant root hormones that bring them into the soil anytime those plants say we're deficient in zinc, and the reason is is that ants have the most bioavailable zinc in them than anything else, and they create these very, very elaborate graveyards. Go and look this up. Wow. And they bury their dead. They'll carry their dead from a very long distance to put them in a graveyard, and then they decompose in these graveyards over long periods of time, and then the fungi, all of the mycelium that's in that soil, actually takes the zinc and makes it bioavailable to all of those plants after those ants are dead. And when the plants have enough zinc, the soil stops having the hormone that tells the ants this is where they need to live, and then they leave.
0: Wow, what, what a harmonic system.
1: What a harmonic system. And this is actually nature, and if we just walk in nature's footsteps, if we take the time to see what's happening over a year, if necessary, two, three, five years over the period of ecosystems or in the case of animal species and begin to see their patterns, then we can learn from them and they are an intricate part of our psyche. You know, the whole world around us is really a reflection of our own internal psyche, of course, we've heard that through uh, you know, Jungian psychology and it's, it's been talked about all over the place in the psychological realm since, so if that is true then those animals, those beings, they represent a part of our psyche. And if we cannot steward to them in the physical, if we can't understand them or take the time to even conceive of why they're there or what function they must be performing, aside from just bothering us at a surface level, then it tells a lot about our character. And it tells us that we ourselves are not wise enough to slow down and to observe the world around us and actually see it as us and to understand what part of our psyche we must be annoyed with and that we're not moving through or stewarding or caring for.
0: My mind is completely blown by this conversation, Phoenix. There's an inherent truth in what you're saying. Many people talk about the ring of truth and being able to discern truth. And I think we all have that inherent ability and many of us forget it over time and some of us relearn it or whatever. But. Most of us know truth when we hear it, and there, there is actually, I'm having a phys- physical reaction to a lot of what you're saying, because there is there is a harmonizing between mind, body, spirit, and nature that you're describing in the work that you're doing, and that is ultimately the holy grail for all of us i think you, you know that that harmony it's what we're looking for that's the key to happiness and i don't just mean happiness in terms of oh i'm delighted with my lot in life today i'm having a great day or whatever that's the the satisfaction and the the great work i think to borrow a term from a number of different places that we should all be doing and that we're looking to achieve. You're talking about a great work here and it's not even a gift to humanity. It's it's almost like a, a shaking or a wake-up call for humanity. Like, cop on, this is what we have. This is what we can do. This is inherent to us. So come on, let's do it. You know, rally the troops.
1: Oh, right, so John, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly my my energy about it and my passion about it is, and I look at it like this, okay, is that, we are the only species on the planet that has the capacity for conscious stewardship like do you think that the dung beetle is looking over the animals the the elephants that give it its dung Hmm. and stewarding them i don't think so but what it is doing is it's performing its function see but humanity what, in my mind, it's not language, it's not the use of tools, it's not our use of civilizations, plenty of different types of animals and insects and all sorts of things. They have those things, some, in some instances they have them far better structured than we do in my opinion. Like for instance with bees or with ants or whatever, they're able to work as a colony and as a society much more more coherently than humanity and they also have pheromones for communication and so on and so forth, so it's not any of that. What is different about humanity Is our capacity to understand other creatures and what they need and how we with just our hands and with our ingenuity can be able to catalyze our environment to make it the best that we can for us and the best that it can be for nature. And in my opinion, it's just so sad. Like, people don't understand sometimes, and sometimes the things that I existentially am sad about or that I existentially am frustrated about when they read my, my Facebook posts. Let me give you the context here. We have so much capacity for beauty as the human species, and in my observation, we seem to collectively be squandering it because we don't even know what that gift is. And it bothers me every day that I hear somebody say, well, what's the purpose of humanity? What is the purpose of our life? I have to say, if you haven't given yourself purpose, if you haven't looked around and found something beautiful that you find is worth saving, that you find is worth dedicating yourself to, I don't know that anybody can help you because there's not a destiny that's out there for you. There's a destiny that you have to create. So for me, that's, that's the real point. Of humanity right now is let's get back on track we have the ability to steward ourselves our families our loved ones to steward our animals properly not to be using this factory farm bullshit that everybody's out there eating right now it's making them sick it's making them tired and fatigued and can't even get through the day like if we keep the things ourselves if we help our community farmers if we do the things and just make some slight changes that realign humanity with the laws of nature not the laws of capitalism which is what has usurped us but the laws of nature we can still be capitalists but we have to balance things with what is resourceful what do we have the resource for and what can we provide with our hands not many people would be eating you know bacon every single morning and having you know chicken soup for dinner and whatever else every single day Mm if they actually had to pay the farmer the fair wages to do these things, all of our world is now and always has been built on the back of slavery of somebody else doing our work for us and them not being paid very well or even at all. And this is the very first time in the entire corpus of humanity that we have a choice and a decision but it will take complete responsibility on the behalf of every individual to be able to make the changes that are necessary for our world. Nobody gets the opportunity to just be a lazy human. If you have the emotional issues because you had the bad parents and you had the bad thing, we all feel bad for you. We truly do, but feeling bad for you will do nothing. What we need to do is address the issue and we need to empower you and give you the resources easily available for you to overcome that yourself. Because as you overcome it, you strengthen us sociologically. Mm -hmm. And if we can start to think these this way, if every individual, can start to be empowered to overcome their own grief, their own disaster, we will see a beautiful and bright world in just a generation or two.
0: And it does boil down to personal responsibility, doesn't it? I mean, so many of the conversations I have on this show boil down to that same thing. If we take responsibility for ourselves and for our own development, and if we then in turn are open to passing the information that we have learned through our experiences onto others so that they can then take personal responsibility for themselves imagine the blossoming that would ensue then and it reminds me of a facebook post you put up only in the last 24 hours or so like an aboriginal approach to mental health in times of drought if the land is sick you are sick so it also stands to reason that if the land or the ground that you walk upon is healthy well then you will be healthy as well and that is for the benefit of all but we have to take that personal responsibility for ourselves first and foremost
1: that's absolutely too true it is absolutely too true yeah and there's you know there's so many things that we could blame the loss of our humanity on so many points in history i'm a historian there's so many things that i could point to that say oh at this point it became bad and oh, at this point it became even worse and then you know compounded compounded yet still and I can point that out for each different culture at each different time, especially for those uh, who have predominance in the the early American colonies and modern United States and Canada. And, you know, the thing is that the one common denominator is that people didn't take enough accountability for themselves. They didn't learn their own martial arts. They didn't do their own blacksmithing. They didn't do their own things that allowed them to be free and autonomous people and as a result there was always the crown or some judicial set of government or a gang of thieves or rebel rousers or whatever who would come in and usurp dominance over other groups of people that is true perennially throughout history from the very beginning of time Mm -hmm. and then those groups always created two things one dominance over the religion if you conquer the god or gods of that civilization you've conquered the people and then the other thing is is that if you conquer their money then you have conquered the people And government and religion have served as a dual enslavement over humanity for a very long time but we cannot blame those systems those systems we have succumbed to time and time again because people have not taken the responsibility upon themselves to create their own systems, except for where, in very few cases that they have, we see some very beautiful and blossoming local areas, like for instance in Ithaca, New York, you know, they created their own currency a very long time ago. It's one-to-one with the dollar. Local people get paid in the Ithaca. You can pay local restaurants and all sorts of things with the Ithaca. It's a very cool system. It's not the end all be all, but these are the types of things that we need to start looking towards and creating local regional look or municipalities, you know, uh, things that we that are able to like work together all on the same page. Uh, whether that looks like a district or a neighborhood or, you know, just a few houses together. But we need to start thinking about the resources that each of our land has, the resources that each of us can provide, the services each of us can provide each other, and begin to create local systems of trade in addition to our own personal spiritual work because when we do this then we're really aligning the physical and the spiritual again to be more harmonic and to be more unity based like we've been talking about for you know however long we've been talking today
0: yeah i couldn't agree more and it's empowering to think that there are people who still think this way and i think an increasing number of people are thinking this way at the same time an increasing number of people (laughs) are thinking the other way as well. So uh, there is a bit of a schism, I think, has emerged over the past maybe decade or so between those people who seem to be open to breaking the cognitive dissonance that has built up over time and those that just are steadfast in the way way that things are um, a la the system. So are you hopeful for the future, Phoenix, in terms of what we've talked about and that future being brighter? Or what way do you think things are going to go in terms of society as we know it right now?
1: You know, I'm always hopeful. What I see most is that if people will conquer their personal fears, then we have a bright, bright future. But if we cannot get over our fears of defeat whether that is our self-defeating attitude or whether that is oppression from other systems. I don't think that humanity will be a very bright and beautiful place. I think that there will be able to be people, they will always exist. I think there will always be moments of human brilliance and human happiness no matter what happens. Even in the most slave-like of environments, people still find happiness, that's true. Hmm. but our humanity may not have a semblance of freedom the way that many of us would hope for if we don't actively stand up for it. You have to realize that to stand up is to make a difference. Because half of the people who are not standing up are the ones who are passively contributing to the system that exists. It's not that everybody is complicit. It's not that so many are actually complicit. It's that the many are very much so like herds of people. They are so damaged as individuals emotionally and mentally and just abused repetitively that their self-worth is so little that they don't have an opinion and they will go with the way that whomever they respect or whomever has abused them tells them to do. And that is the authentic reality of our planetary situation. And so if you stand up, you begin to make a difference because those who are resonant with your cause will listen to you and they will vibrate just like a tuning fork and then there will be many voices to you, what was once your one voice and together we are a very strong and beautiful uh, hope for the future of the world, but individually, especially if we don't speak up, we have no power, we have no ability for assimilation, we have no ability for movement, we have no ability for change. But it happens personally and it happens with our communities first because, you know, as many people who might be vibing with what I'm saying right now, unless they're right here in my community, I'm kind of a relentlessly provincial person. I don't go many places because I have, you know, a lot of agricultural space here. You know, I have a lot of things to tend to and chickens and, you know, all the things. And so, not to mention my laboratory and, and the students. When people come, they usually have to end up coming to me as a result. And if we began to really think about the people who are in our environment and what they could be, and then think about yourself and what you could be, and then make yourself that, you will make a difference. And it may not be totally visible in this generation, and who cares? The goal is long term. We have to run the long race here. If you have an influence on your children, or, you know, some other children and that there's so many children it doesn't matter what children you have our world needs teachers of all sorts and if we can change our education system and impact other people's children we're doing the same generationally as we would be if we were having our own so it's not about breeding it's about utilizing the resources that we have thinking about how to take it from step a to to our final destination in as many calculated, you know, as few calculated steps as possible, but as many as are necessary to achieve the actual desired result.
0: Absolutely. And I think what you spoke about earlier about spirit and how the spirit will always be there the spirit the spirit cannot be ultimately defeated so even the work that we do now while we mightn't physically see it on this plane of existence if you like the spirit will always acknowledge that that spirit will live on on a vibration or an energetic level and essentially i think what you're saying is be the change that you wish to see in the world (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, without trying to be so repetitive, I guess I did.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I love how you've laid it out. It's, it's been so eloquent, so easy to understand for me personally, and I think it will be for the listeners as well. And, um, yeah, you just articulate yourself so well. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, Phoenix. And for anybody who might like to see, hear, or do more, or get involved with your work, uh, can you direct us to your website and to any other bits and pieces that you would like, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll spell it out because uh, my name can be a bit of a tongue twister for those who aren't uh, literarily inclined, I suppose. It's going to be Phoenix That's phoenixaurelius.org. That's P-H O E N I X A-U-R-E-L I-U-S.org. And on my website, you will find a number of things. If you want to purchase any of my spagyric medicines, we ship all over the world except, unfortunately, to the EU due to shipping restrictions in their country. So again, that's a thing where we should be rising up and influencing our countries and uh, our shipping policies and other things. If we just let them know what is important to us, then we can make a change. But unfortunately, we don't ship to the EU. We ship to all other countries, including the United States and Canada. Um, you can go to my Spagyric Apothecary page. I also have various wellness programs and research programs, and lots of other things. So just poke around the site, and uh, if you are interested in getting in touch with me about more education and stuff, just go to the contact page and get a hold of us. And myself or my office assistant Rebecca will get in touch with you very soon.
0: I have the power. You have the power. We have the power, Phoenix Aurelius. It's been educational and spiritual, speaking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Alchemy. I really appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much.
2: Alchemy.
0: Alchemy. Alchemy. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are very, very grateful indeed for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations, and it all helps, and will go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is greatly appreciated. So thank you to everyone for your recent help and support. We're back because of you and we couldn't do it without you. Until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power.
2: Magic moments when to Never forget the moment we kissed the night of the hayride. (laughs) The way that we hugged to try to keep warm while taking the sleigh ride. Magic. Magic. Telephone call that tied up the line for hours and hours. The Saturday dance I got up the nerve to send you some flowers magic.
0: Imagination.